0: Section number one of The Black Cat, volume one, number twelve, September eighteen ninety six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julian Black Cat, volume one, number twelve, September eighteen ninety six. Section one The Reapers by Lee Batterman Lindsay. Some years ago, when the boom was abroad in the land, it invaded the Northwest Territory with peculiar frenzy. Cities sprang up out of the prairie as by enchantment. Not tent and shanty cities, mind, but metropolises, with long straight streets and imposing brick and stone blocks which housed banks, real estate offices, hotels real estate offices saloons and restaurants and real estate offices commercial establishments real estate offices tram car lines were projected if not built and electricity made night luminous presently When the town lots were all sold, the speculators departed, and the investors settled down to business and began eating each other while waiting for the country to settle up and railroads and commerce to arrive. When they had exchanged commodities with one another until their stocks were exhausted, or foreclosed by the wholesalers in Toronto, Victoria, or St. Paul, they silently stole away, one by one, without folding their tents, which remained as monuments of man's gullibility. To one of these deserted cities, from which the last inhabitant had fled some time since, there came one afternoon in spring the reapers, a man and woman. They came from the south, in a concord coach, filled to its utmost capacity with their effects, and took possession of the town. They chose their domicile gaily, with reference to a convenient stable for their horses, of which they had four. Two they turned adrift to shift for themselves, and two they kept. The home of their choice was a Queen Anne cottage in the suburbs, where a few neglected rose bushes still survived in the garden. "'If we get tired of housekeeping, dear, you know we can go and live at the hotel,' said the woman, and she laughed delightfully. "'Yes,' said the man, "'or we can take a suite of rooms and board at the restaurant.' and then they both laughed. It was great larks getting settled in their house. The woman, who was rosy and plump and dimpled, did not perform much of the hard work, but her laugh was an incentive. She sat about on boxes with her skirts tucked up and supervised, or on the veranda, railing and watched the pruning of the rose bushes, which she had a fancy for reclaiming. She was not much of a cook, but they managed between them, with many fugitive caresses by the way, to prepare sufficient for their needs. Laughter and song and foolish badinage made the hours fleet. If there were a past that it would have been burdensome to remember, neither remembered it. This was a new world, and they were primal creatures in it, beloved of the dew and the sun, the moon and the stars in their courses." When the weather tempted, they rode about the country, exploring it. They hunted together, he teaching her to be expert with her small rifle. The hunting was pastime, but it was also needful to vary the larder. He planted and tended a garden that they might have salads and green peas and potatoes for the winter. He had been a farmer's son before he was a bank president. In the evenings, as they sat on the piazza, She played the mandolin, and they sang college ditties together. Theirs was an idyllic existence, and a moralist would have been incensed to observe how kindly was nature, and how little remorse preyed upon their minds. Everything was food for amusement. The pyramid of tins, of all shapes and sizes, that grew up in the back lot as the canned goods disappeared from their storeroom. In appointment of their wonderful appetites, They called the Tower of Babel because of the variety of language that found representation on the labels. They laughed at the acoustic effects which accompanied their footsteps through the empty streets. She said it was the ghost of the boom prowling around the haunts of his former triumphs. They explored the departed buildings and rooted out all sorts of flotsam and jetsam. Once it was a bundle of love letters left in a bureau drawer. They read them with shouts of mockery. Again, it was a row of empty fruit jars, which they appropriated to put over their tomato plants. Another time, it was a pile of advertising circulars, setting forth in florid terms the advantages of their present place of residence. The advantage of its solitude was the one advantage they never thought of advertising, and now it is the only one that procures it the honor of our society, said the man, and as usual, they laughed. Then it was a pile of old periodicals that they carried away and devoured with avidity, which was a bad symptom if they had stopped to think of it. Then they went into the rotunda of the hotel and tried all sorts of vocal gymnastics to rouse the echoes in the tears of empty rooms. They took solitude by the ears, as it were, and made faces at it, and laughed always. They got into the way of calling themselves Adam and Eve, and said to each other that they were happier outside the garden than they ever were within it. Is this not divine?' said Eve, as they sat one twilight hour on the steps of their little porch, her head upon his shoulder. "'We thought it would be an exile, but it is heaven. I don't want ever to go back among people. Here we are all sufficing to each other, but back in the world some day someone would find us out and point the finger at us.' The man tightened his clasp around her supple form. You know, he replied gravely, that we counted upon that. You thought you would be able to bear all that and more for love's dear sake. And so I can, she said, but this is better. Well, he replied again, we have the best part of a year. Before us, you know, for you to change your mind in. By the time the supplies have given out, I fancy you will want to see people, if only at a distance. Everybody will have given up looking for us by that time, and we can slip away to South America somewhere for a while and be as secluded as ever you please, and still within reach of human companionship if we desire it. Have you looked at the money lately? she asked, irrelevantly. (laughs) Who would steal it? he returned, laughing. Anyway, let's look at it, she persisted. So they went inside... Little lamp, and undid their boxes and examined the hoard. It is not so much after all, she said discontentedly. You can never do anything with all those papers. Why not burn them? They are a great weight to carry about. No, they are of no value to me, he, he replied. But they are of immense value to other fellows. Some day I shall be able to make terms with those, and then we can live where we please. Do you believe, she asked, drumming absently on the edge of a box with her taper fingers and not looking at him, do you believe, really believe in your heart, that you will be able to slip away so easily when we go out of here, back again among people? If I didn't believe it, I should not have undertaken it, he answered. Don't you believe it, too? You did once. Did I? she said. No, I never looked so far ahead. I don't now, for that matter. The present is enough for me. Don't let's lose any more of it mooning over this horrid box. Come away. As the autumn approached, life began to wear a less holiday aspect. Fuel must be provided for the long winter. The wild grass, growing rankly in the city streets, must be cut and cured for the horses. The potatoes must be dug and stored. Eve followed Adam about everywhere. Two is company, but one is a crowd in a deserted place. Too many viewless things make themselves felt and heard under such circumstances. "'What were we thinking of that we didn't fetch a dog?' said Eve one day. "'He would have been a lot of company, and protection, too.' "'Protection from what, the serpent?' asked Adam, and then they both laughed. "'One night one of the horses was taken sick. "'The man came in after a lantern, and the woman followed him out. "'All night they worked over the animal.' fomenting him with hot water and dossing him like a Christian. In the morning he was better. Dear, said Eve, then, not before, what would become of us if anything were to happen to the horses? We should have to invent a flying machine, the man answered lightly. But there were lines in his face that were not there the day before. With the first rain of autumn, their cottage leaked like a sieve, we shall have to go to the hotel they said simultaneously accordingly they moved as soon as the storm was over they chose a sunny suite of rooms with windows facing the south transferred their belongings and made themselves cosy for the winter of stoves and ranges as well as many other bulky articles of furniture they had their choice it was while this flitting was in progress that a queer thing happened adam was away with the wagon and eve was alone in their apartment arranging it with housewifely instinct quite absorbed in her occupation and humming softly to herself she was not in the least startled just at first when a little cooing voice behind her said mamma yes dear what is it she answered with her mouth full of tacks then at the sound of her own voice in the empty room she threw up her head and looked about her aghast Breathless, beads of perspiration starting out on her face, suddenly grown pallid with the pallor of a corpse. After an instant, she cast herself on her knees, half beside, half over a couch, and sobbed with the abandonment of despair. Thus Adam found her when he came back. It was the beginning of the end. He never left her alone again, longer than to go downstairs after an armful of wood. But even in the midst of conversation, she would stop and say, Listen, now don't you hear it, the steps in the hallway? To be sure, the great empty building was full of whisperings and patterings, rustlings and sighings and moanings, enough to shake stronger nerves than hers. Often a low, intermittent hum went on, like the buzz of voices. At times they could all but make out the words of the conversation. That, he satisfied her, was a draft of air circling about in the rotunda, the footfalls he could never hear, the voice she said nothing about, and indeed it was a good while before she heard it again. But the footfalls and the whisperings were more than she could endure. Let us go, let us leave this dreadful place, she murmured pleadingly at last. I am afraid it is too late, he replied, regarding her anxiously. It is liable to snow any day now, but we will move, We will find some smaller, cozier house where there are not so many noises and echoes. We will go and look for one right now. They went out under a leaden sky and found a residence in the intolerable repair that gave promise of dry quarters. But the search had consumed the afternoon, and moving must be deferred until the morrow. When the morrow dawned, the snow was falling in a cloud, and any change of base was out of the question. So then they set themselves to endure with cheerfulness, neither was a weakling they kept themselves busy he split wood and minded the horses and she kept with him and helped him she cooked and swept and he helped her they played the mandolin and sang and beat one another at cards every day he promenaded her up and down the halls and long dining rooms so many miles for a constitutional he made a bow and arrows and they practised archery They played paper-chase through the rooms, and when hunted too closely, she would recall a childish accomplishment to her aid and slide down the banisters. Outside the snow fell and drifted, and the silence of the summer became in their memories as the clatter of looms in comparison with this silence of winter, broken only by the fall of mimic avalanches from the eaves of some house, or the howl of a gray wolf drawn from afar by the scent of their beasts stabled in the basement. Eve seemed well on the way to recovery from her temporary panic when one day she heard the little voice again. They were having a paper chase, and she was eagerly pursuing Adam through the empty rooms when the voice said, "Mamma," and brought her up short. After that, it spoke to her with increasing frequency, never when she was listening for it and dreading it, or, as she sometimes did, longing for it, but always when she was busy and absorbed in something else, or waking her up out of sleep, and bringing her upright in her bed, trembling like a leaf, and with wide eyes staring into the darkness. It never said aught but Mama, or repeated it the second time, but she came to know at last that from any momentary respite of self-forgetfulness or fragmentary happiness, the little voice would call her back to penance. Sometimes, after it had spoken, she could hear the patter of tiny feet in the hallway or on the stairs. So the weeks went by over the dwellers in the abandoned city until one night they were aroused by hearing one of the horses below stamping extraordinarily. Adam arose and went down hastily to see what was amiss. He could not discover that anything was, and returned, shivering up the stairs. The bed was empty, and in a panic he searched about the room's lantern in hand. At length, he found Eve cowering in a corner. Eve! Eve! What is it? he cried, afraid to touch her. She did not answer, and her eyes reflected the light from the lantern like an animal's. What is the matter with you, dear? Don't you know me? he asked again, pleadingly. Raising the lantern on high so that the light fell upon his face, reason came back to her eyes slowly. Oh, is it you? she said. I did not know who you were at first. After that, he grew in a manner accustomed to behold that strange film glaze her eyes, when, for a moment, as she told him, her world grew strange to her, and each familiar object became something never seen before. One day, when he had been after an armful of wood, she had disappeared on his return. He sought her from room to room, through the echoing halls, opening every door, calling her name aloud at first but ceasing finally lest the echoes should add to her fright at last on the third floor he came to a door that was locked behind that she must be and he knocked and called and besought with phrases of love that she would open to him but there was neither word nor movement in response fearing to break the door in lest she should fling herself from the window fearing too lest she should perish in the cruel cold of the unwarmed chamber he framed a desperate resolution he entered the room adjoining the locked one and softly raising the window crept out upon a narrow ornamental cornice which ran around the building below this third tier of windows it was coated with ice and a chance as desperate as a man would care to take in any strait but because he was reckless of consequences he passed in safety the short distance separating the windows and stood on the sill of the next in comparative safety If he found the window fast, his daring were in vain, but it proved not to be. He raised the sash with the heedfulness necessitated by his situation and let himself into the room, but the woman there was oblivious to his presence. She was kneeling in the vacant room upon the bare floor surrounded by the empty white walls with her head drooping and arms moving gently back and forth as if swaying a cradle while she smiled and crooned a soft lullaby. Noiselessly he turned the key in the lock and stole away, returned presently with a blanket, and gently enwrapped that kneeling form, all unconscious of his touch, which had once had power by its lightest impress to send an answering thrill along every fiber of sensation throughout her frame. And then he left her to awake in her own time from a dream to which he never referred. But the day was one that deepened the lines that the year had graven on his forehead. At length there came, one eve, a strange wind out of the upper sky. All night it blustered and raved and raced through the empty streets with a noise as of marching battalions. In the dawn, great masses of snow began to come thundering down from the roofs with rush and roar. A January thaw had set in, and the air was vocal with a thousand lispings and tricklings and tinklings and gurglings and cracklings and creepings the very joists in the wall seemed to be feeling the running of sap in their fibres and a fine ear might almost have detected the dance of the atoms as they took new partners and arranged themselves in new combinations throughout the northern hemisphere now let us go let us go cried eve eagerly as she woke and hearkened away from this awful place all day the strange wind blew and under their eyes as they watched the snow vanished and the brown wet earth steamed in the sun on the second day they turned their faces southward their wagon waited with their scanty stores and the treasure box the prairie lay bare before them but the man knew well that the mountain passes which rose between them and freedom were still choked with snow but the woman said go i must go whatever comes of it and he made no further demur. so they wended onward over the moisture reeking land with its swollen streams and myriad pools in every hollow of the plain. It was some weeks later that the Avenger found them, and when he found, his hand fell empty of its vengeance, for this was the manner of it. Frozen, standing upright in a huge snowdrift where the blizzard had overtaken him, was the man. With his gloved hand shielding his brow, he was gazing southward as if mapping out a path on the plain below. At his back gaped the portal of a mountain defile, country chaos of glacier-riven rock and snow-laden firs, Drooping like weeping willows under their icy burden. Passing his enemy by, the avenger pressed on into the gorge. Around its first turn, in a sheltered nook, he found her whom he sought. But his hand fell empty again, whether of vengeance or of pardon, For on her, too, the Ice King had breathed. She was crouched before the ashes of the extinct fire. Around her lay scattered widely the contents of the treasure box, while clutched close to her breast by her rigid fingers, as though she would shield it from the storm, lay a strange bundle. A faded shawl rolled into the semblance of the muffled form of a child. Upon the frozen whiteness of the icy wall behind her were traced with a blackened ember, in a woman's uncertain handwriting, these words... The wages of sin is death. Afar off in the wilderness, the beasts of the wild prowl through a deserted city, moldering into decay, while yet the timbers of its framing are unseasoned, and the ghost of the boom remains in undisturbed possession of his kingdom. End of section number one.